The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 58 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be exploring an intriguing century-old Canadian case, the murder of 20-year-old cab driver Carmine Lapello, who was killed, presumably, by a mystery couple that he picked up. And we'll jump into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank my friend Shay and Aaron, host of the brilliant true crime podcast, All Crime, No Cattle. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate and help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Carmine Anthony Lapello was born in Ohio in February 1897. He and his family moved to Toronto, Canada when he was three years old. On May 6, 1914, Carmine, who was just then 17 years old, married Marguerite Mulvaney. But the marriage was short-lived and the two separated. Marguerite eventually had the marriage annulled in Buffalo, New York. Following the annulment, in 1916, Carmine began calling himself Tony Ross and started a taxicab service with two recently purchased vehicles. At around 11.30 p.m. on July 20, 1917, Carmine and another taxi driver named Joseph Pill, Carmine's friend, were sitting in Carmine's car at the taxi stand on Toronto Street. This is when a man and woman approached them. Both appeared as if they couldn't afford a taxi. The woman wore a large straw hat that hit her face, and the man wore a cap pulled down to conceal his face. Both cab drivers got an uneasy feeling about the couple. The woman told Carmine she wanted to go to High Park in the green car with white stripes. She claimed she had ridden in that car two nights earlier. 
Carmine told her it must have been his other driver, Edgar Bridges, because he didn't remember her. There was only one other car similar to Carmine's, and it belonged to Frank Lombardi, who was not on duty that night. The woman insisted Carmine be the one to drive her and the man, who was standing at the rear of the car, to High Park. But Carmine didn't want to do it. The uneasy feelings he had about the couple continued. So Carmine and Joseph argued briefly on which one would drive the couple. But Carmine gave in and agreed to it. Between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m. the next morning, Carmine's body was found in an area known as Humber Bay, on Toronto's far west side. He had been stabbed 14 times in the back with a stiletto knife. His right lung had been punctured twice. Due to the number of stab wounds, police assumed the murder was a crime of passion. The medical examiner estimated time of death was about one to one and a half hours before the body was found. When police questioned cab driver Joseph Pill, he told them that he had seen the couple up close, and he told police that he had seen that woman before, and would recognize her if he saw her again. Police talked to a nearby resident who said he heard two men arguing in Italian earlier that morning, followed by a struggle, and then the sound of a car speeding away. One man was taller than the other, about six feet tall. Police learned that prior to his murder, Carmine received a threatening anonymous letter postmarked in Montreal. The letter was addressed to his wife, Marguerite. The author told Carmine he could be killed if he didn't stop talking to the police. Toronto police had no idea what the author was referring to. A couple more letters were sent to a Toronto newspaper, apparently by the killers, mocking the police and threatening Joseph Hill. It scared Joseph enough that he completely changed his story and told police he couldn't identify the woman. Two requests were sent to newspapers asking that the reward be raised from $500 to $1,000, but it didn't lead to any breaks in the case. Toronto police came close to finding the identity of the mystery couple, but apparently the woman came up with a diabolical plan for deception to steer police in another direction, and it worked. On July 29, 1917, Private Arthur Colin Kilner, Canadian Army soldier, met a woman on a train from Montreal to Toronto. She offered him $5 to pick up her suitcase in Toronto. He agreed, and the two shared a drink. A short while later, Kilner became violently sick and couldn't stop vomiting. He was taken off the train and hospitalized. It turned out he had been poisoned, most likely by this mystery woman. On August 18, 1917, Kilner was once again hospitalized, but this time he was unconscious. Doctors had no idea what kind of poison could cause him to be so ill. When Kilner was finally able to talk, he told police he was walking on Front Street when he saw a man and woman. The woman said, that's him, as he walked by. The man then grabbed Kilner and dragged him to the side of a road and forced a cloth saturated with a liquid into his mouth. This incident occurred near Queen's Hotel where Kilner was to retrieve the woman's suitcase. This woman matched the description of the one who asked Carmine for a ride the night he was murdered. At this point, police were still thinking that their crime of passion theory was correct, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. It turns out, Carmine was involved in the illegal bootlegging trade. In 1916, the Ontario Temperance Act was passed prohibiting the consumption and selling of alcohol in Canada. It was similar to Prohibition here in the U.S. from 1920 to 1933. Soon after the act passed, 
tea rooms, a.k.a. speakeasies, were set up. In May 1917, Carmine was arrested twice for the illegal shipping of alcohol, or ISA for short. Joseph Lapello, Carmine's great-nephew, who started researching Carmine's murder in 2010, believes that Carmine transported alcohol in his taxi cab to the tea rooms. Many of these tea rooms were in Humber Bay, where Carmine's body was found. At some point, Carmine became a police informant. Bootleggers found out and had him killed. That's the working theory. Joe Lapello also believes he uncovered the identity of the mystery couple, Rocco and Bessie Perry. Rocco was known as the Al Capone of Canada and was a self-proclaimed king of the bootleggers. While he handled the physical aspects of the business, Bessie was the brains behind it. Joe Lapello theorized that Rocco and Bessie had Carmine drive to where the killer was waiting for them and then forced Carmine out of the vehicle. Following that, he was murdered. Joseph believes the killer was a man named Frank Lombardi, and he drove a cab that was very similar to Carmine's. Like Carmine, Frank was Italian and spoke the language fluently. He was also about the same height as one of the two men seen arguing in Italian shortly before Carmine's murder. The smaller man is believed to be Carmine Lapello. The mystery couple and their killer have never officially been identified, and the case is still unsolved. As far as this couple that Joseph suspects murdered his great-uncle, Bessie Perry was shot to death in the couple's garage in August 1930. Rocco Perry vanished without a trace in April 1944 and has never been found. Joseph Lapello became so intrigued in the mystery surrounding his great-uncle's murder that he wrote a book called Murder Lost to Time, which focuses on his exhaustive efforts to solve this century-old mystery. Joseph sat down to discuss the book, and his great-uncle Carmine's murder. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about today's sponsor that you've heard me talk about before, Best Fiends. Many of you know that true crime is my passion, but even someone like me needs a break from it every once in a while. So when I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun game that has a great puzzle-solving aspect to it, and an ongoing story that unfolds as you play. What I really like about Best Fiends is that the game really stimulates your brain and can be played casually. It's got a great looking design and bright, bold colors. I've been competing against my wife and I'm happy to report that I finally passed her. She's on level 221, but I'm on level 229 and we're both having a lot of fun in the process. We try to play every day. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Our next sponsor is BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can now get help on your time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors are available who are specialized in anger issues, depression, stress, anxiety, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. There are 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and BetterHelp is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is available on desktop, 
mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, but it's secure, convenient, and professional. And financial aid is available for those who qualify. If you're a regular listener of this show, then you know that sometimes we all have a lot to deal with. And BetterHelp can help you through those times. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. The Murder My Family listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FAMILY. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com family. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you love. Once again, go to BetterHelp.com family and use discount code FAMILY. Hi, Joe, and thanks for joining us to discuss your great-uncle Carmine's case with us. Thanks a lot, Mike, and uh, thanks for inviting me on the show to be able to speak about it with your listeners. Oh, no, it's it's a, a really fascinating case, and I think listeners will will appreciate the complexity of it and the, uh, the, the twists and turns in the case that you were able to uncover. I, I think one of the challenges of this case, and... and and maybe for an author writing a book about it, in your case, um, was that your great-uncle Carmine died many years before you were born. What initially got you interested in researching his case and learning more about it? Well, I uh, I became acquainted with this case in 1964 at the age of 10. Uh, my parents had asked me... Uh, to help with the spring cleaning, an annual spring cleaning, and I was in the basement uh, cleaning out some old boxes and everything. I came across a shoe box that had photographs in it. I started looking through of it, uh, through it, and uh, I recognized most of my aunts and uh, uncles and cousins. But I came across a photograph that, to me, looked like it was very old. But I didn't, I didn't recognize this person, so I brought the photograph up to my parents, and my dad started explaining to me that it was his uncle, because the victim in this case, Carmine, was my great-uncle, and how in 1917 he was murdered, and that his case was never solved. Uh, I must have been a pretty curious uh, kid, because um, it was something that's with me. I didn't obsess about it, certainly not at 10 years old, but at certain uh, intervals in my life, uh, his name and the case uh, was being talked about with other relatives. Because, uh, you know, that that's a very traumatic thing to happen to a family, and it affects everybody. I always thought in the back of my mind that one day, I certainly didn't know if I'd be able to solve it, but I, I thought I'd research it, just find out how much uh, about the case that I could and about him, and uh, go from there with it. It wasn't until years later I was able to do that, though. Now, you mentioned that it was, was tough for your family. Did you Were you able to learn anything about how they were affected by it, how they uh, initially handled it, and, and finding out that Carmine had been murdered? The first thing I noticed when I brought the photograph up to my father, that he became very saddened by it, because Carmine was his uncle. And at the time of Carmine's death, my father was approximately seven or eight years old. My father was born in 1910, so he would have been uh, seven years old. But at that time, you know, there was no internet or television, and a lot of times families would get together on the weekends and that. And 
I gathered from what my father told me about him that he was like my father's big playmate, you know, like a real older brother. And uh, he missed him quite a bit. So that that was uh, my first indication of how it touched the family. Like my father's brothers, my uncles, I could see them too. Uh, one of them was a little bit older than my father, and he had a very uh, uh, vivid uh recollection of Carmine. Unfortunately, by the time I started doing my research, that uncle had passed away uh, himself. So I wasn't able to ask him any questions uh, about Carmine. But I I did find other sources that gave me uh, an outline of his personality, the type of person that he was, and uh, what he was involved with in his life. Yeah, I I was going to ask you, since you didn't know your uncle, you had to get to know him sort of through what you learned about him from from your research, from your family. Based on all of that, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of person Carmine was? Uh, he was uh, he was a very likable young man. The only th- some of the characteristics that he had, he was very stubborn and bullheaded. In 1914. I think it was May the 6th, 1914, he had married the daughter of a self-proclaimed uh, professor. Uh, and he he was head over heels in love with her. He, he was really obsessed. And uh, they didn't uh, stay together very long. And she had actually filed for divorce in Buffalo, New York. Because at the time in Canada, the only way you could get a divorce was through an act of parliament. It was very costly and time-consuming. But you could annul uh, the, uh, the, uh, the marriage in Buffalo. So that's where she filed for divorce. He was granted the divorce, too. Uh, but he, he, was, you know, he was very well-liked by people around him. But uh, I could see he was very stubborn. He, he did have that characteristic about him. I think... His age may have played a part in that. Was he uh, 20 years old when, when he was murdered? Yes, he was only 20 years old at the time of his murder. Yes, I guess he probably had some of that youthful confidence or overconfidence maybe going. Overconfidence, yeah. And I think maybe sometimes the, the more things change, the more they say the same, because I think that never changes, I think people in today's well, society. I think that's almost a rite of passage, isn't it, Mike? You know, as we're growing up, uh, we think we're invincible until we get hurt a couple of times and find out that we aren't. And you mentioned that he, he got married young. He, the marriage didn't last, so they weren't together. But he sort of came out of that and, and decided he wanted to do something with his life, and he started the the cab business. How soon did he get that started following the marriage ending and, and how, how long was he doing it before he was murdered? Well, this is, that's a very good point. And, and it brought up some, uh, questions and it also raised, um, some suspicions in my mind because, uh, the reason that his estranged wife, Marguerite didn't want to stay with him. Her complaint was that he wouldn't work and she, and he wouldn't support her. Now that was around 19 and, 15. They were married in 1914. That was around 1915. And as late as 1916, he had borrowed some money off of her. Now, today it doesn't seem like a lot, but back then it was like maybe 50 or or $100, which was quite a bit of money 100 years ago. And um, 
that, that's what made me very curious about him starting this taxi cab business. It made me feel like, because I tried to figure out where he got the money for these two taxi cabs he was supposed to have owned. And I calculated that the price of these taxi cabs would have been around the $1,500 mark. Well, uh, his parents wouldn't have that type of money to lend him. He certainly couldn't get it from a bank. He had no collateral. But the other thing that made me suspicious about him being the owner of these taxi cabs was both cabs were registered in somebody else's name. And I thought to myself, well, the only asset in the taxi business are the cars. And why are they registered in somebody else's name? Why would he do that? Well, the only thing I could think of was either they really weren't his or he was up to something with these taxi cabs that were illegal, was illegal. And in the event that they were confiscated by the authorities, the real owner or the registered owner could go to court and say, look, I didn't know what he was doing with these cars. You know, he was using them as a taxi cab and uh, this was all done behind my back. And in that event, those cars would have to be released back to the registered owner. So it, 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 I, I don't even know if the if these were his cars, and I couldn't confirm it through all the records, the city records in Toronto, because those records have long, you know, long been destroyed or lost. So this was your first inkling that perhaps he was mixed up in something that might, you know, might be a little bit shady. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, but it, it sort of it, it, it struck me as being very odd. Why would he do that? So it was my first, it was the first suspicion that was raised in my mind about these taxi cabs and him being in this business. How long was he doing the cab job before his murder? Approximately a year and a half. And were there any indications of how the, how business was going with, with the cabs? Well, from the testimony of his sister at a coroner's inquest after the murder, uh, supposedly she, uh, he was doing pretty good. He had bought some pretty expensive items, a ruby ring, a brass bed. He seemed to always have money in his pocket. And uh, he seemed to be spending a little bit more than the average taxi cab driver was making. This also made me a little bit suspicious. It made me suspicious that he was getting income from another reven- uh, another source of revenue. Well, that leads me to my next question. So in, in your research, you found out that Carmine wasn't just working with the cabs. He dabbled in uh, some illegal alcohol smuggling. Would that be the right term as a side uh, hustle? He, uh, I think the taxi cabs were being used to ship alcohol. In 1916, the Ontario Temperance Act was passed that forbid, well, every tavern and bar had to close. Public consumption of alcohol was forbidden, and it was all, uh, all the liquor stores had closed. Now, it was still le- uh, legal to manufacture alcohol in Canada, but it had to be shipped to another country. It could go from the distiller who was making it to the shipping port and then 
as long as it went offshore, the Canadian government didn't care about it because they were uh, collecting an excise tax for it. But um, what made me, uh, and this uh, I had to find out about this, I looked through uh, the police records, uh, court blotters of uh, 1916, and found that he, oh, pardon me, 1917, he had been arrested twice and charged with I... ISA. What I found out that was that was the illegal shipping of alcohol because in 1916, the Temperance Act was passed, made it illegal to buy it and consume it. But in 1917, the law had been um, strengthened up, so you, you weren't allowed to ship it anywhere. I was going to say, just, it seems like those laws are sort of, uh, they sort of interfere with each other uh, uh, in a way. It made it legal for the dis- uh, for the distiller to ship it only if he paid a government excise tax. But well, how how they uh, how all the speakeasy started in Ontario was uh, like an order would be placed from say uh, Buffalo, New York, over the telephone to a to a distiller. Okay, and the distiller would fill the order, and uh, the person who who placed the order would say, "Well, this." ship is pulling up to the harbor in Toronto, and from there it's going to Cuba or to the United States. Canada didn't care about the Prohibition Act in uh, the United States. Okay, All the way through Prohibition, uh, the Volstead Act in the United States, Canada didn't care about shipping uh, alcohol to the United States, as long as they got their excise tax. And it did it didn't land back on the shores of, of Canada. Well, what, uh, I mean, obviously the, the, uh, placing of the order was phony. Uh, the bootleggers were buying boats, pulling up to the Harbor, paying the excise tax, loading the boat, then they would drive, uh, further along Lake Ontario, not very far, maybe, you know, 30, 40 miles, dock the boat, unload it, and then distribute it to all their speakeasies. So we didn't have bathtub gin in Canada. We had the real stuff because it wasn't illegal to manufacture it. So I think at, now once once it landed, it had to be distributed to all the speakeasies. Some of it went back to Toronto. Some of it went to northern Ontario. Some of it went uh, east of Toronto. Some of it went west of Toronto. But as a front, they would use these taxi cabs to deliver cases of alcohol. I believe that's what he was involved with. And just uh, on the scale, I know that that sneaking the alcohol was probably big business on both sides of the border. Um, any idea how successful Carmine was at doing it? How, what success he was no, having? No, he no, he was more like um, a mule. You know, uh, he was just somebody who um, had a taxi cab. He could fill the trunk or the the back seat up with a few cases of alcohol. They would tell him where to bring it to, uh, and he'd be paid a little bit of money for doing that. He wasn't buying the alcohol himself and selling it. He so wasn't he, a bootlegger. So he wasn't one of the masterminds. He was more or less just making a little no, extra money helping. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very low level. He, he was in no way uh, at the head of the food chain here. You know, he was He was a worker. Okay, and you think that ultimately, though his his murder is 
connected to that that business, though, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. And if, if you would, take us back to the night of Carmine's murder in July 1917. It, it seems like Carmine and another cab driver, a guy named Joseph Pill, I had some That's mis- right. They had some misgivings about a couple that needed the services of a cab driver, and they both seemed reluctant to pick this couple up and give them a ride. Can you tell us a little bit more about that reluctance they both had and what made your uncle and this other cab driver nervous about them? Well, at first, um, it was speculated by the other drivers, this is after the murder, that uh, what Carmine uh, was, uh, why he was reluctant to take these couple, this couple to their destination was, was their appearance. They looked very shabbily dressed. They looked like they didn't have the money to be able to pay for the fare. But it was also stated by a couple of cab drivers that Carmine wasn't uh, shy about asking for the cab fare up front if he felt this way about the people that were asking for a ride. So now anybody that knows anything about the taxi business knows that typically in the summertime it's very slow. The weather's good, people walk to their destination, and Toronto was a much smaller place then than it is now. And yeah, you know, uh, when he started his shift, uh, this man and woman were the first fare, and he was the first uh, taxi on the stand. So he was entitled to to get this fare. And when he refused them, I said, well, why is he refusing a chance to make money uh, at the very slow time of the year for this business? That's what, that, that's, that made me very curious. You know, and then what I realized is it wasn't so much their appearance that had uh, made him un- uneasy, but I think it was the area they were ask- asking to be taken to. It was uh, That was an area just west of Toronto called the Humber Bay. It was also where he was murdered. That uh, a, a year, or 1916, he had testified at, a, at an inquiry in that area about uh, certain speakeasies and what was going on at, uh, at them at an inquiry. Like, like it would have been like um, a police inquiry. So he was testified at that. I don't know what he said, but surely the people that he was doing business with didn't want him to say anything. But I think when he was arrested for the illegal shipping of alcohol, the first time I think was fine. But then he was arrested again on it. And the second time, it was six months in, in jail, in a county jail. That, that would have been the penalty. At the same time that he was arrested, he was desperately trying to get back his ex-wife. He, was, he went to Buffalo himself uh, to attend the annulment uh, court to try and fight it. He, but she did win it. But he still thought he could get her back, even though the annulment was granted. So uh, him refusing that fare, uh, the reason the police seized on for it because of their appearance, turned out not to be the real reason. Because he would have he would he would have just asked for the fare up front. If they didn't pay it, he'd say, "Well, you'll have to take another cab. I'm not I'm not driving you." Uh, and that's a good a good segue. So you you. You uncover what you believe is is the real truth there, and we're going to get to that. Um, but I w- I wanted to touch on first, if we could. So 
after he takes this couple reluctantly and drives off with them, he's not seen again, and then his his body's discovered. Um, he'd been murdered. Tell us a little bit about his wounds or what police thought about the murder when they first found him. Mm-hmm. That, too, was... Um, it was very strange the way he was found. Uh, he was found with 14 knife wounds. They were all in the back. A couple were in the neck, uh, and the rest of them were administered in the back. So he must have been laying on his uh, face down and the person stabbing him must have been left-handed because all the knife wounds were on his left side. This was not a, a, a frontal assault. He was wrestled to the ground. He was held face down, and he was stabbed by somebody who was left-handed. And uh, also, uh, the way, uh, his body, I, I believe the, the crime scene was staged because he was left with... Uh, his pants pulled down and his privates hanging out. Now, anything, anybody that knows anything about Italian customs, Italian people, uh, revenge that they try and get, this is the way a jealous husband would leave a man who was after his wife. The attack to me seemed like overkill. Now I ruled out uh, robbery as the police did, because he still had his money. He still had about five or six dollars on him, which was about a, a week's pay. So if he wasn't robbed for money. You could rule out. But that was deliberate. He was left in a state of, like, disgrace to give the impression that this was revenge for him going after another man's woman. But what and that's exactly the motive that the police seized on they were they were proceeding in the investigation from that point but when i started to research his life and the way he had acted after he lost his his ex-wife marguerite and the way he behaved he was like a he was he was like a a buck in heat he had no eyes for no other woman but his ex-wife he was obsessed with getting her back. As a matter of fact, she was with another man at the time. I, she, she had gotten another boyfriend. And one week before Carmine uh, was murdered, uh, he confronted this man in a garage in downtown Toronto. And they had a fight. Carmine hit him and knocked him to the ground and told him to keep away from his wife. Meanwhile, the annulment was going to take effect two months later in September. She wasn't his, you know, that was it. It was all over, but he couldn't accept it. So this is what led me to believe that um, he had eyes for no other woman. Marguerite was the only woman he was interested in. But because his body was uh, left like that, it, it was to give the impression that the motive for the killing was maybe he had insulted the woman who was with the man that hired him hired him to take them out there. And that's exactly what the police seized on, because there was no other motive they could find. But that was staged by the uh, by the person who planned this murder. I mean, you mentioned, Does that answer you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you mentioned the police sort of seize on this couple, and they say, okay, it makes sense. They're the last couple that are with him, and then he's found dead. Um, but they couldn't identify them. But you did some digging, and your res- research led you to a couple who you believed were the the fairs that night and murdered your uncle. And what you found 
you believe this was more than just a simple murder. It was an involved and part of a complex mystery. Tell us where your research led you to and about this couple and why you came to believe they, they were who you believe they are. Okay, well, uh, first I should describe to your listeners this couple. On the night of July the 19th, 1917, as I said, Carmine, my great uncle, was on the taxi stand. He was just beginning work. It was approximately 11.30 at night. And uh, from the east of, uh, of where his, uh, the taxi stand was, approached a man and woman. Now, the, the woman walked up to him, who he was sitting in the driver's side, and the, uh, the man walked around to the back of the car. Now, the man had a cap on. He had it pulled down to hide his face, and he had the collar, uh, the lapel collars of his coat pulled up. This was also to conceal his identity. The woman did all the talking to try and hire him. Uh, she came up with a story that uh, she had been out with this uh, in this car before, the green car with the white stripe, a couple of days later. But he hadn't. He had a driver that used the car too. He said it must have been him, not me. And uh, she had a was wearing a black hat with a big brim on it, and it was pulled down over her face. So all you could see was her teeth. You, you couldn't make out her face. Almost like Joseph a disguise, Smith, essentially. Yeah, they they were making a very concentrated effort to conceal their identities. This is why I knew they were involved in it. Because, you know, this was approximately 11.30, quarter to 12, uh, quarter to midnight. He was found, uh, the murder occurred at 4 a.m. The only reason for them to, to conceal their identities was they knew what was going to happen later on to him. Their, their jobs was uh, to lure him out there to that area, okay? Now, uh, Joseph Pill, my, uncle, my great uncle, Carmine's friend, was he also a fellow taxi driver, was sitting in the passenger seat talking to Carmine. Joseph Pill was from the downtown Toronto area. Later, shortly after the murder, he said that he, he couldn't really identify the man, but he felt that he had seen the woman before in an area of Toronto, downtown Toronto called The Ward, and he would recognize her again. Well, two days after that statement hit the newspaper, he received an anonymous letter uh, threatening his life if he, if he didn't stop cooperating with the police. So it, it scared him, and uh, in, in, in further interviews with, with the newspaper, his story started to waver, that he wasn't too sure anymore if he had ever seen her, never, uh, you know, uh, he could identify her. He's completely, he was scared and he changed his story. You know, but this man and woman were the key to solving this because they were involved in it. Now, they were never identified, not in a police report, not in a newspaper article. Nobody who was still living that I asked about this ever knew who they were. But I knew it was the key to solving the crime. Without, without knowing their identities, I, I knew I couldn't solve the crime. And it was quite a task trying to do that. And uh, it led me, it widened my search. I began to investigate the people in Carmine's life, do a very wide search. And I came upon a document that at the time it didn't exist. The document didn't like, exist till two years after the murder. 
it was a, a marriage certificate. And uh, on the name, uh, on the marriage certificate was a name of somebody I had heard before. He was, he was widely known as uh, a very big bootlegger here in uh, Canada. This also made me, you know, a bootlegger. Uh, uh, you know, this also made me uh, realize that Carmine was involved with the uh, with the illegal alcohol business here. Does that does that answer yeah. your question, Mike? Or? Yeah, and 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 who were who did you believe this couple ultimately was? Yeah, I I, I should say something to your listeners that. Although uh, they were involved in it, they they did not commit the murder. It was done by somebody else. There were four people involved in this murder. The man's name was Rocco Perry. He was known as Canada's biggest bootlegger. But that wasn't known until about 1925, 1926. You know, some nine years after, you know, uh, he had just, in 1916, he and his uh, common-law wife, just they were just starting out in the bootlegging business, so they weren't well known as they as they are now. There's been several books written about him, but uh, until I find out found out what Carmine was up to, because there was a lot of bootleggers in Toronto at the time, this man's name never came up. And how did you link to him that that he was probably the one that was involved in this? Well, there was another taxi driver. That, and the only other taxi driver that had a green car with a white stripe. He worked from that taxi, the same taxi stand that my great uncle did. And very suspiciously, he, he was absent that night. Because at the coroner's inquest, the taxi drivers were, that were there were questioned, but he wasn't there. So if this man and woman who approached Carmine didn't know him by sight. They would know, just look for the green car with the white stripe. Now, this man, this other taxi driver, who wasn't present that night, he had a brother that lived beside my grandfather, who was Carmine's uncle. And I began to research, because I just ran out of, you know, I, I, I couldn't identify these people. It was so difficult. They didn't have the notoriety that they did have nine years later, so their names never came up. They were just a mystery. So I, like I said, began banding my search of the people I knew who were involved in Carmine's life. This man, who was the brother of the taxi driver, he had a daughter. In 1919, she was married. One of the witnesses at, at her wedding who signed the, uh, the marriage certificate was Rocco Perry. Another person, the woman who signed as a witness, also lived at a residence in the ward in Toronto where the police twice had come because uh, I believe they had got some information from another taxi driver who later on got very scared and shortly after the murder <laughs> relocated to Vancouver, to British Columbia, Vancouver, which is approximately 2,800 miles away. So that's a world away back in 1917. But they had been there twice. So uh, that's how I stumbled on Rocco Perry. But the same document tied uh, the woman who was a witness at the wedding to um, the residents in the ward, a very suspicious resident. 
Actually, the police were a lot closer than they thought. They, they actually stumbled onto that residence. There was also a diversion concocted by the woman from the taxi stand. We can talk about it a little bit later on, but that's how I eventually found uh, Rocco Perry and, uh, like I said, uh, the, the female witness at the wedding came from that address that was in a police report, the only uh, existing police report on the murder. And can you share a little bit about the diversion and a little bit more in depth about those two, how they're related to each other? Okay, well, well, first of all, uh, on or about shortly after the murder, two or three days after the murder, the Toronto police uh, had visited an address in the ward. They were tipped off by somebody that they could gather information about this murder at that address. And it was also known as an address where they were selling illegal alcohol. There was a man uh, some months later who was uh, wanted by the police, like he had a provincial warrant out for him. That would be like a state warrant out for him. And he had been he had been hid there. And, and that area in Toronto was very notorious. That area called the Toronto Ward. They called it the Ward. Everything was going on there. Illegal gang, uh, gambling. There was brothels. There was alcohol being sold. There was drugs being sold. Well, at the time, the most popular drug, drug was morphine because a lot of World War I soldiers who were uh, injured in battle, that's what they got addicted to. And it was being sold. So this is a very notorious area. And they had went to this address. Now, the people at that address were doing business with Rocco Perry. Uh, uh, they also knew how dangerous he was. and uh, But they never said anything to the police. Oh, by the way, at 3 a.m. on the, the morning of, of my great uncle's murder, uh, uh, an Italian was seen being driven away from that address. And this Italian was supposedly wanted for stabbing. But he's not named in the police report. He's not named anywhere. He, I eventually found out that he was the man that committed the murder. But anyways, shortly after the murder, two or three days after the murder, the police had gone down to that address. They had been tipped off. And they were asking questions. I believe that this panicked the people at that address. I believe that they made a phone to the woman from the taxi stand who was hiding out in Montreal with some relatives of the murderer. And they were told, uh, you know, the police had been there twice asking questions and they were getting very nervous. So she boards a train from Montreal going west to Toronto. Around well, midway, there's a, a small town called Belleville. But before they got there, this woman on the train approached a young Canadian soldier who, who was on furlough from uh, the camp he was stationed in in northern Ontario, visiting his mother in Montreal. She started a conversation with him, and she asked him, you know, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm going to Toronto. And uh, she said, well, would you mind picking up my suitcase at an address in Toronto? I left it there. And she offered him $5. You know, this is the equivalent of uh, of a week's salary today, $5 back then, you know. So he, he became very curious, and he said, well, why don't you just pick up your suitcase yourself? So she started telling him that approximately nine days ago, 
her and her husband had hired a taxi cab to take them out to the Humber Bay area. And her, the driver had done something to offend her. The husband got very angry and began fighting with the taxi driver. She said, at this point, I left them and went up the road, and I don't know what happened. But the next day in the newspaper, this taxi driver had been found murdered. This was my great uncle. So now I thought this very conspicuous. Here it is, nine days after the murder, that everybody in Toronto was talking about. Three police forces are working on provincial, uh, uh, the city of Toronto, and the county police. So you have three police forces. Everybody's looking for them. Uh, It's being talked about by everybody in the city. And here she is admitting to a perfect stranger uh, her and her husband's involvement. But during the conversation... She makes it uh, very clear to him she's only going to be in Toronto a couple of days and that later on she's going to return to Montreal where she lives. And she goes through the trouble of showing him the return ticket. Now, while they're on the train sitting together and she's explaining this all to him, they're having a cup of tea or they're having a drink of some type. Uh, but the train didn't serve alcohol, so there was some other drink. Short, shortly after he shares this drink with her, he becomes violently ill. He starts vomiting uncontrollably. He has very intense stomach cramps. So bad, uh, the pain is so bad that the conductor and the engineer when they pull into the town of Belleville, um, phone an ambulance or something to take him to the hospital. Okay, it's obvious she's poised, put something in his drink to poison him. How can how can he be good one minute, have this drink with her, and then all of a sudden he he becomes violently ill? She's slipped him a Mickey, is what's happened. But before she's done that, she's conveyed this concocted story. Now, the reason for the story is to divert the the police's attention from that address in Toronto, in the ward, to get them going a wild goose chase to Montreal. Well, after the soldier is treated by the doctor and is feeling better, he tells the doctor what happened and says, you know, you better call the police. This woman admitted to me that her and her husband was involved in that murder uh, nine days ago in Toronto. So the inspector from the Ontario Provincial Police interviews this uh, private from the Canadian Army. And uh, the description uh, uh, must tally up with the woman from the taxi stand because he goes, he, he gets leave for this soldier and they go to Montreal to this area where this woman says she lives and the police uh, and this policeman contacts, you know, uh, the chief of police in Montreal explains it and the, pol- and the chief of police takes him around, you know, to check out brothels, dance halls, uh, uh, speakeasies where they could find a woman like this. The whole idea of the meeting with this uh, private from the army is to get the p- police to go on a wild goose chase. And that's exactly what they did. And they must have bought a hook like it, line and sinker, because no place in uh, the inspector's report does he ever return down to this address where he's so close to getting information from the people who have first-hand information. They know who did this, but they're not talking out of fear. So uh, that was the diversion set up by this by this woman from the taxi stand. She was the mastermind. Because the man that was with him, he never spoke a word. And the reason for that is 
he had a very, he had a very thick Italian accent. He spoke English, but with an Italian accent. And it would have been very recognizable later on, had they have ever picked him up as a suspect. So this diversion works, and, and police don't ever find, uh, don't go down the right road after that. But eventually, after, after the case sort of goes cold, um, there's some mysterious or, or violent ends to this, both the, the man and the woman and this couple. Can you tell us uh, briefly about that? The woman, yeah. The woman, um, I think August the 22nd, 1930, her and this man, Rocco Perry, who was her common-law husband, um, pull into their mansion in, in a city called Hamilton, Ontario. They have a, a 16 or 20-room mansion there with the money they've made uh, in 1930 from bootlegging. And uh, she opens the garage and goes to turn on the light. They had two cars. They had a sedan and a coupe, and they were driving a coupe that day. And from the, the sedan was parked in the garage. Out from the uh, from behind the sedan jumps two men. Both of them are armed with double barrel sharp shotgun, and both of them blast her. She's killed instantly. She gets one shot in the face, uh, one in her uh, abdomen that almost cuts her in half. And uh, she dies instantly on the spot there. They make no attempt to kill uh, Rocco. He, as a matter of fact, he ran up the street screaming. That's how shaken up he was. But that, that, that's how she ended up anyways. And Rocco there, in uh, during the 1930s, there's two bombing attempts made on his life. Uh, both of them are unsuccessful. And uh, when the war broke out, the Second World War, um, Canada had a policy of rounding up aliens. Canada was at war with Italy, and he was Italian, and a lot of Italians were rounded up, mostly on, on you know false charges, and they were put in these internment camps. He spent, I think, either two years or three years there. He's released in 1943, and uh, he disappears, never to be seen again. So perhaps maybe a little bit of karma comes to, to both of them. Well, I don't, you know, it, it's, uh, what happened to Rocco is unknown, for sure. So I don't know what his eventual fate was, but certainly the woman, uh, I guess what goes around comes around, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a really, it's a hundred-year-old mystery. It's a um, really fascinating, you wrote a book about it called Murder Lost a Time about the case. Uh, it's it's very well researched and involved. We, we mentioned some of the twists. You've got poisonings, uh, people being murdered, disappearances. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff in it, which which almost makes for a uh, a murder mystery that someone might write. But this, what's fascinating is this is all true. Well, we didn't have a lot of time to discuss a lot of that stuff. What are some of the things that readers might find most compelling in the book about this case? I think would, that would uh, the thing that would keep their attention the most is uh, how uh, it, it's multifaceted as a mystery. Once you know, uh, like the main mystery was finding out uh, the identity of the man and woman after ninety-two years had gone by. That was that was very difficult to do and quite a mystery. But then once you find out that there's other mysteries. You know, it, it, it like opens the door to three other mysteries. 
you know, because the, the, this this murder was uh, very, it was planned out very good, and it was it wasn't just the murder that was planned out. What was planned out is um, what direction to lead the police in their investigation. There had been a couple of letters sent to the Globe and Mail newspaper at the time, uh, mocking the police, making fun of their effort, trying to catch them, and also threatening Joseph Pill again publicly, because that that letter was published in the Globe and Mail newspaper. Uh, there was threatening letters sent to Joseph Pill right at his house, so they knew where he lived. And um, But the diversion they set up, like uh, the crime scene was all staged to give the impression of the motive. And that's the direction the po- police uh, started investigating. That's, that's the motive they seized on. What they didn't realize is everything was planted. They were being led around by somebody, you know. And, and uh, I mean, the, this encounter that uh, this private uh, Kilner had on the train, this is very suspicious, you know, with this woman. But the whole, and, you know, uh, most people on the face value of the pr- report, how it's written, would say, well, she's telling this guy, you know, this stranger about how and her hu- husband's involvement. But, I mean, why would you do that nine days after the murder? I mean, back in Canada at that time, uh, for capital murder, premeditated murder, it was the gallows, and we were using them back then, you know? So, I mean, this was a capital crime, and she's admitting to a stranger. I mean, it just kept going on with mysteries, and even Carmine's uh, life was a mystery. He was acting peculiar in a lot of other ways that didn't make any sense. And he ha- and I had to try to find out what he was up to. Oh. And uh, so it, it was it was a lot of research. And like I said, when one mystery uh, was solved, it opened up three other mysteries that I had to solve. So this this is a tale that will keep anybody who's interested in it and, you know, gets the book. It, it, it should keep them glued to it if that's their... That's their cup of tea if that's what they like to read about. Definitely well-researched and well-written. And uh, it's, anyone that's into that kind of uh, crime, I, I think they'll they'll really get a lot out of the book. Where can people pick up the book? It's available on Amazon at Amazon.com. All you have to do is punch in the title, Murder Lost to Time, and I'm sure they'll enjoy it. Yeah, we'll definitely put it in the notes so people can find it. But definitely a good read and a really fascinating case. And I I can't thank you enough for joining us to discuss the book and your Uncle Carmine's case. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview of a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Murderous Minors, so be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Just so you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared. Murderous Minors brings true tales of children who have killed. Premeditated murders, accidental killings and deaths, from toddlers to 18-year-old killers, no one is too young to take a life. 
Join me, War Baby, as I try to tell these stories of the young who've killed, the lives they took, and even the ones who've been left behind. Why do children kill? What do we do with young killers? And do they kill again? Until next time, don't be scared. <laughs>